my neighbor at my parents' place uh, approached my dad one day when he was taking the rubbish out. And he said, I don't mean to pry, but I see the light on upstairs at your house every night. And then the next day, your son and wife go to the post office. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and that was how I met my co-founder in Afterpay. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Nick Mulner is co-founder and co-CEO of Afterpay the leading retail installment payments innovator recently acquired by Square for $39 billion. Nick's vision for Afterpay was to create a global payment solution that would allow consumers to pay for items in four interest-free installments. As a millennial himself, he recognized that this generation has an aversion to credit cards because they can lead to compounding debt. Nick launched Afterpay in Australia in October of 2014, and listed the company on the Australian Securities Exchange in 2016, previous to the Square acquisition. Prior to establishing Afterpay, Nick launched the leading American online jeweler, Ice.com, in Australia, and successfully grew the business to become the largest online-only jewelry and watch retailer in Australia. Earlier in his career, Nick worked as an investment analyst at a venture capital fund, and previous to that, played semi-professional rugby in Australia. I kicked off my conversation with Nick by asking him if he had always grown up with the entrepreneurial gene and where he found his entrepreneurial drive. Firstly, thanks so much for having me. You know, I was really fortunate that uh, growing up, my parents were jewelers. So, you know, they were always entrepreneurs themselves. They taught me that, you know, you didn't have to rely on a paycheck. You could go and you know, create your own and really forge your own path. And so from a young age, I was surrounded by, I think, the the difficulties of being an entrepreneur, but also all the benefits that came with it. You know, my parents were always at my sporting events or whenever I wanted them there, they had the flexibility to do, to do what, um, well, just to be incredible parents. But at the same time, they were entrepreneurs and they were kind of leading the charge in their own right. So, yeah, I think they just gave me the confidence to, give it a go. It's funny though, when you finish university, the world still tells you to get a job. And so even though I was, you know, selling jewelry online and I was being an entrepreneur and doing really awesome things, it was funny how gravity still kind of pulls you in a different direction. But the universe has its funny way of just getting you on the right path. And when you were graduating university, was that you? Did you go the route of getting a job instead of really just jumping into being an entrepreneur right off the bat? Yeah. Basically, I was always the kid at school who everyone would come to to sell stuff on eBay. I knew how eBay worked and it was like, you know, 2006, 2007. And and then when I finished school, my mom turned around to me and she said, you know, you should like really take this online thing like seriously. I think you've got something in it. We've got all the supply relationships. So like, why don't you leverage A, the stock that we have in our shop, but also just our network and see what you can create. So I, I did that. 
And in my second year of university, I sold the most jewelry online out of my bedroom. Um, so, so like going through college or uni, as we call it, I, I didn't have a job. You know, I didn't need a job. I had this side hustle. And then, you know, you're graduating with a business degree, a finance degree, and everyone says, be an investment banker, be a management consultant. And so that was what I tried to do. But I'd go for an interview and they'd pick up my CV and they'd be like, okay, but like, why are you going to stay? You know, like you've got this thing here that's like, that you're, that's going so well. Like why we're going to train you, we're going to bring you in. And I thought I had a really good answer to it. I guess I never convinced anyone that that was true. And I just never got past kind of first round interviews. And um, yeah, the rest is kind of history. What was your answer? Because I mean, those people are really perceptive, you know, understanding that this guy is an entrepreneur, like, look what he's already done. But what was your answer? What did you try and tell them when, when they would ask you that question? I had like done like the UBS investment banking programs and I like topped my university because I worked really hard at that program, not in my broader cohort, but like that particular competition. So I like was proving that I was capable of doing, doing these things. And I would just reference, you know, my desire to be a banker and, you know, the skills that were required. And it was funny. I ended up, um, meeting this gentleman who had kind of branched off from one of the investment banks in Australia to build a venture capital fund. And I got to him because I went through this process, this gentleman in the process said, Hey, you should meet this guy named Mark Carnegie. You know, I think you guys would get along really well. I think he anticipated that I was going to get booted out of the program and (laughs) which I did. And I went to meet Mark and Mark turned to my CV and he goes, Hey, tell me about this business. What's your forecast for next year? What's your forecast for the year after that? And I couldn't, I couldn't answer him. You know, this was like the business that meant I didn't need to get a job. And he basically said to me, like, stop trying to get a job. I'll hold you a job for a year. And if you, if it doesn't work out, come back, but you'll never, you'll never come back. And it was funny how it took like the desire to get a job to get the confidence to actually be an entrepreneur and and go and do it myself. Yeah, that's really interesting. I gotta ask. Well, why did you get kicked out? Well, it was these interviews, you know, like I just couldn't <laughs> give the answers to the to giving them confidence that they were going to really invest in me and I wasn't just going to run off and be an entrepreneur. And probably, you know, partly being an entrepreneur, you, you, my answers were probably being held back by a desire to be an entrepreneur. But yeah, I just couldn't rationalize to them how I had this business that was making me meaningfully, meaningfully more income than they were going to pay me and why that made any rational sense that I wanted to be a banker. And it's funny how like the world then in hindsight, you then like start working with all these bankers and <laughs> and you go through these processes. But um, no, it's an amazing moment in my, in my life, that, that phase coming out of university. Yeah, I think that's universally true, you know, for for a lot of people, unless they dropped out of school and just started creating a business where even today as, as entrepreneurs and so many people wanting to start businesses at a young age, it's almost like, let me get a job first for a couple of years and then let me go at this. And I do love the fact of just saying, hey, go for it. I, I lasted six months at, at uh, Lehman Brothers, an uh, investment bank, before I was just like, I got to do this on my own because not investment banking, but my own business and sports. And, yeah. and I just, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do. So it sounds like, though, you went for it, you did it. And then 
How does Afterpay come about? Well, it was just kind of such fortunate, such a fortunate combination of a few different things. Yeah, the first was obviously I was selling jewelry online. So I was, I had retail in my blood. I understood, you know, how retail worked. And out of a hundred visitors to a website, a jewelry website, less than one buy. So you're always obsessing over the consumer and how you make the experience better. And then basically growing up during 2008 financial crisis, I turned 18 in 2008 and I saw this cohort just stop spending money on credit cards. And in my mind, it was like, is this going to change? Like are people going to graduate like the previous generations did to a credit card as time progressed? And I just kind of watched watched this trend over a few years to see if it was in fact you know, a fad or it was going to sustain. And basically it just kept growing as millennials earned more money. So they earned more money and naturally they spent more on debit because that was their preference. And that just kept becoming more and more prominent. And I ended up like no word of a lie. My neighbor at my parents' place approached my dad one day when he was taking the rubbish out. And he said, I don't mean to pry but I see the light on upstairs at your house every night. And then the next day, your son and wife go to the post office. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and that was how I met my co-founder in Afterpay. So Anthony was a very successful investment banker. And I was like, hey, there's like this thing happening with this debit shift. And with my kind of retail background, like there's a different way you can do this for millennials and so, you know, given I understood that like the model of a credit card, whereby if 100% of people pay it back on time, the industry doesn't work, incentives are flawed. And that's why this cohort said, you know, stop, I'm going to use, I'm going to spend my own money. So it was the combination of both of those things that I went, okay, actually, this is a thing where you can reimagine a whole industry by starting fresh with no legacy business model that you're trying to preserve and build a different brand and and business model and economic outcome where you know everyone in the equation wins and so yeah it was a combination of those two major factors can you explain how you spoke with anthony what did you tell did tell us like how you told him what the idea was and yeah. and then what his reaction was i actually showed him two ideas he thought like this one one was no good this other one being afterpay he really liked and it was funny, like, I think uh, learning something new is so much easier than unlearning hindsight. And it was amazing how he just went, okay, this is the opposite of what I have been doing my whole life, but I can clearly understand why this generation is doing what they're doing and why this is actually just better for human beings for the economy for a whole range of different reasons so like when i like it was just a switch in his mind he just went like that is like there's something serious in that and so you know we were fortunate that anthony actually had through his past life owned a company in melbourne australia that was processing payments for um, the, like one of the largest telcos the health platform over like the government's health platform 711 convenience stores there was a lot of like infrastructure. And we ended up um, building the business with them where uh, they brought all this, this enterprise payments and risk infrastructure. And then we could overlay into that, go to market and really bring it to life. And so it was just Anthony's background, his relationships allowed him to compute it super fast 
And then we just put our foot flat, but we, we stayed under the radar for a very, very, very long time, you know, like, which was purposeful. And I think just in our culture and DNA. Yes. Well, you are out on the radar now, I'll tell you that, but that's so amazing. It's really interesting just how fortuitous it was that he's your neighbor, asked the question, has this background somewhat in kind of payments. And then you partner with someone, you know, which seems like did that partnership, was that really what kind of allowed you to take off and, yeah. and catapult you? Well, when you're going to speak to the biggest retailers in Australia at the time, you're dealing with someone's money and you need the highest level of security, enterprise scalability. Like you need, first thing is you got to like earn their trust because your infrastructure is at a capable level to handle it. And so the fact they could basically give that to a startup put us in a different sphere and ability to go and attract the biggest retailers in the country with no hesitation. And so it was really fortunate that, you know, those pieces of the puzzle came together. And then I'd say the first couple of years were a lot, a lot harder than like year, like two to four, because this debit trend was far less prominent and known when we started the business. And obviously it works because the product goes live and within 24 hours, we process 10 to 30% of a retailer's transaction. It's like overnight. And so it works. And then the, and then the retail community is a small community and then it starts to really snowball. But by the time I got to, to the US, retailers all knew about this debit trend. They were so clear on the differences and why, and it was quite refreshing to have a conversation with these millennial and Gen Z led retailers where they went, I I understand this. And of course, I'd love to partner with you. And so, yeah, it's these different cycles also have been met with different education about what's driving the, the, like the retail economy. Can you explain to our listeners just kind of the business model and the debit uh, trend and format yeah. of the business so they, they understand a little bit further? Yeah, for sure. Well, just take a, you know, a very simple example, a $100 transaction if I'm buying a $100 pair of shoes instead of spending $100, the consumer pays four payments of $25 every two weeks. We pay the retailer next day, and then we assume all of the non-payment risks. So consumer gets the product up front, we pay the retailer straight away, and then we recover the money on the due dates in the future. The consumer gives us a debit or credit card to make their automatic repayments on these due dates. However, 90% of our consumers use a debit card, not a credit card. So if you look at like present state in the US, two out of three millennials in the US don't own a credit card anymore. They all use debit cards. And outstanding credit card balances now are at the lowest level since the 80s and have only continued to fall as the pandemic has unfolded. And you know, if you look back in the middle of the pandemic in May last year, credit cards had negative 21% year on year growth, but debit cards had positive 12. So there is this like macro shift away from credit, revolving credit orientated solutions to people have a preference to spend their own money and use a debit card. And it was led by the millennial cohort. Gen Z is even more over indexed to debit. And the largest decline of credit balance was actually Gen X and older over the last 12 months. So you're just seeing this huge shift in the payments landscape unfold. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. 
At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. And our next sponsor. In the startup world, most times companies start small. It can be intimidating to be that small business facing competition for much larger companies in the industry. Small businesses can succeed against the big companies, as we have heard this David and Goliath story many times. But like David, it's all about having the right tools and resources. That's why I highly recommend you start listening to the David vs. Goliath podcast as the ultimate tool and resource. In each episode, host Adam DeGrade covers the five smooth stones that every business needs to slay the Goliath in their industry. The David vs. Goliath podcast is dedicated to helping small businesses leverage technology to compete and win against their large competitors. The show is packed with everything you need to succeed, insightful guest interviews, sales role-playing, and actionable tips you can apply directly to your business today. I'm telling you, if you're a small business owner or entrepreneur, the David vs. Goliath podcast is a must-listen. Search for David vs. Goliath podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Going back to that first year, was there ever a time you felt like, you know what, maybe we should have went with the other business plan? <laughs> yeah, well, many, many, many of those times. And I just think uh, this is going to sound totally altruistic, but like you, you climb a mountain and then our mindset is like, you look at the next mountain that you've got to climb. But I remember like our first ever retailer turned us off ever, like because our platform wasn't ready. Like we rushed it out. We weren't ready to get there. It was Valentine's day. They were a very holiday led business and they thought we were going to completely destroy their holiday periods. They came live. We were fist pumping. They turned it off. We were going, oh, this is never going to work. It actually took three and a half years for that retail to come back. Right. So like, it was funny because after that, we haven't really had any attrition, you know, like retailers come, they see it, they see the volume. But there were plenty of these moments in time. We actually went public nine months after our first ever capital raise. So in Australia, there's not really a whole lot of private capital. So it was a listing out of desire to survive because we needed capital and not because we were spending and burning a lot of money. It was actually because we need to pay our retail partners and we haven't yet put in place the facilities that could fund our receivables books. So like there were just this chicken and egg of a two-sided network so hard to balance, especially when you need the inventory, which is ultimately capital in the mix to uh, fund your book. Yeah, it's amazing. I was thinking you must need so much capital when you're paying these retailers for all these transactions. I mean, I could only imagine, but going back to the, like you said, you're fist pumping, you get this client, then this happens where they pull you off their platform. Yeah. How did you rebound from, how'd you feel? And then how did you rebound from that? Like I played a lot of rugby growing up. So I think like professional sport DNA is like in my mindset. (laughs) So you just keep going and going and going. And I remember thinking, well, the best thing to do is actually just to place the right, like we hadn't been able to tell our story properly. And 
we had one article in a retail press publication and it led to this fast fashion female business called Princess Polly come inbound. They filled out our contact form and I didn't tell Anthony that they were coming live because I didn't want to over-promise and under-deliver. But I just also didn't compute that when they did come live, we'd need the money to pay them as, you know, right? So they come live, we start, we had a target of doing 30 transactions a day. We were at 300 transactions a day. Ant and I are funding this ourselves. We're like, this is our own money now. We're paying Princess Polly because this business is now starting to get going. But then like you fast forward two years later, three years later, and the, the Kardashians filled out our contact form. That's great. You know, so so like these cycles, when you really believe in you're approaching an industry in a new way, sometimes that takes time to unfold. And it's what are the tipping points? And then after those milestones occur, how do you capitalize on accelerating your growth beyond that milestone? So yeah, it's just it's a, just a complete mindset game when you're an entrepreneur to try and get to the next phase and overcome the problems as you, as you're referencing. Yeah. It sounds like you must've picked yourself off the mat many a times. And I love the thinking about sports and team sports and especially rugby, where you really do get smacked down and you got to get up. And it sounds like that was really an important part of your success, the sports. You also talked about your parents early on and what was it that they provided do you think to you, aside from just being entrepreneurs and seeing how they operated, but what was it that you think has helped you to be this successful? I think they probably did two things. I think one was they just instilled a huge amount of confidence and self-trust that there are different desire, there are different ways and paths to get to your outcome. And that can be an entrepreneur or that can be getting a job and they were supportive of whatever way that that went. I also just think, you know, if you meet my parents, you'll see they're just just fundamentally good human beings and the desire to stay under the radar, the desire to do what we did and keep doing it well and get to our outcome and still remain, you know, Anthony and I, the same two human beings that we were six years ago when we started the business as we are today, you know, that comes from somewhere and it's instilled in values that have come from my parents and from Ant's parents. And then if you speak to people within our organization, you'll see that 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 permeates across the whole business, you know, like this is a super close group of people that takes it personally, but they're fundamentally good human beings. And yeah, I just think they've, they obviously, I'm, I have a huge amount of gratitude for what they they have done for me, but actually a whole lot of the values that they instilled in me and Ant's parents instilled in him, I just think are so, so prominent throughout our whole business. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, so great to hear, you know, especially when you see so many businesses, successes and, and people who that wasn't instilled in them and, and getting places without having kind of that mindset. It's, it's so nice when you do hear that for someone yourself who's been so successful, that that's where you come from and, and a, a big reason why. And I want to know, you know, you've talked a couple of times about staying under the radar. What was the reason or belief you did that? We didn't stay under the radar when we knew we needed to represent ourselves to our consumers or our business partners. So we were with Women's Wear Daily and Business of Fashion and like, and then we moved from fashion into a broader ecosystem where in Australia, you can buy 
an airline ticket with Afterpay or go to the dentist and use Afterpay. You can buy your home from Bed Bath & Beyond or Wayfair or jewellery from Pandora. Like there's just, it, it gets far broader, but we weren't out there to like build press for the sake of building press. It was about conscious business growth and leaning in in the right way when it was really beneficial for the organization. And I think actually like being Australian, you know, like I got here to America and I was telling the story a couple of nights ago where my I asked my head of sales just respectfully how I thought, how she thought a pitch went because I thought it went really well, right? And I was just being polite. And she said, you were a bit low energy. <laughs> And I had to like get taught how to present myself in this new culture and ecosystem that, to be honest, is pretty unnatural to an Australian who, like, that's just not really what what we do. And so it's just been great to see all these cultures around the world and, you know, how you just find your own balance because we're certainly not all of that, but we're not all of what we used to be. And I think that mix is super special. Yeah, that's that's amazing in, in terms of Australia and the US. They're so similar in so many ways, but when you look at it on the on the business side, you know, it's it's very interesting how different one of my our good clients, I have a business now, we create podcasts for brands, is is a company called Ansarada, which is Australian based company. And it's just it's so interesting the some of the differences, but, you know, then again, everyone, they're successful in their own right and you're successful. And when you do take your business here, there's little changes, but was there a pivotal moment when you knew that you had made the right decision and, and this was going to be really big? Yeah. It looks, it's all happened really quickly. And, you know, we would never have dreamt of being a global organization. So like I can remember the moment in time when I knew this was going to be an Australian success story and being mindful that in Australia, there are no consumer facing tech companies that are Australian, Right, they're all American. So we're being like a receiver. We're not a contributor. And now all of a sudden there's a local born and bred mainstream consumer technology company, which is just so, just so cool in its own right. Then coming into the US and you know, Urban Outfitters said that they wanted to be our first brand. And like, to be honest, I couldn't have dreamt of a better launch partner. And that, you know, just went from one step to the next. And then similarly, we went into the UK, we launched in with Marks and Spencer, ASOS, JD Sports, Boohoo, all who were our global partners. So when you start to see your existing global brands pushing you into new markets because they know the value you've driven to their business. That's when I went like our expansion curve actually is through genuine value exchange and people want you to move because they can see the impact positively that it will have on their business. And now we're live in Spain, Italy, France, Canada, US, New Zealand. Don't forget about New Zealand, Australia. North America, the US, obviously, and UK. And we can go global with our biggest brands because, you know, like we can, we've got one global API, they can expand seamlessly. And that just is a, a really fortunate position to be in. You're a young guy who's had this success, incredible financial success, just with the business, your recent sale to Square. What is it that still drives you right now? There aren't many businesses that have the privilege of being at the forefront of this next generation consumer. And so to me, I just feel very connected in with millennial consumers, Gen Z consumers, 
And if you fast forward 10 years, millennial and Gen Z will represent 50% of all spend in retail. And so I just kind of feel like we're just getting started. And, you know, the combination with Square and Cash App, you know, which should close first quarter next year, has millions of sellers and 70 million annual active consumers in Cash App that are our core demographic. They're a millennial and Gen Z cohort. So now you have like a super powerful platform that is online, offline, small business, big business, broad verticals, broader geographies, but it's all prefaced on this consumer that is the hardest to reach consumer, hands down, we can actually be a super valuable partner. And that to me is incredibly exciting. And it also leads, if you build the right relationship with this customer, it actually leads to them wanting to start their journey with you. So, you know, we send a million leads a day to our retail partners, customers, consumers come to our app to start their shopping journey, to look at what brands accept us. So if we can become the number one customer acquisition channel for this demographic that's going to represent 50% of all retail spend in 10 years, like that to me is the recipe. Yes, we do payments. Yes, we have retail solutions. Yes, we have a great consumer platform. But ultimately, if you can drive new business to your partner, I think that's the holy grail. Oh, yeah, that's that's amazing. I never even thought of that end of it. But what you're doing now for these partners who, you know, initially it was them putting you on on the platform and uh, seems so bright and captured this trend early on. If you were to go back and be 23, 24 years old again and with the world we live in right now, where would you be looking in terms of starting a business? Actually, I don't want to give you a particular area because I just think there is so much opportunity and the cost of starting a business is so, it's so much less than what it used to be. So like you can test and prove product market fit and just, and get scale and leverage platforms. And I mean, to me, my one regret is that I didn't kind of see the opportunity to scale quicker. And you hear a lot, particularly with this next generation about, I've got my side hustle. You know, a side hustle is a side hustle. But many of these side hustles can be really great businesses that can create an income well beyond, you know, getting a job. And sometimes it's, you know, about taking that risk. But I just hope that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, these, these people that are creating businesses actually turn them into real businesses. Because when you can build a side hustle, you can always turn that into a business. Yeah. It's like when you're sitting in these rooms with all these bankers now doing all your transactions does it ever go through your mind like, oh man, I could have ended up like that <laughs> with all due respect to bankers because <laughs> we all have friends in the business. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Look, I'm just grateful of where I ended up, you know, and I'm grateful every day. And I had a amazing training preparing to even try and be a banker and the way you compartmentalize things, you can understand numbers, you can build clarity of people's contribution to the business's success, I think all of that plays its role. But yeah, as I said earlier, there's like so many different paths that your life can take you down. Very fortunate and happy that mine took it down the path that it did. Yeah. Where do you see yourself moving forward in the next five, 10 years, if you can even look out that far? I just think we have such a huge opportunity as you know the combined entity of Afterpay, Square and Cash App. You couldn't dream for a bet for better components of a platform 
to bring the future to life. And so to me, I couldn't, you know, I can tell you the immediate synergy and how you extract value and how you inflect growth curves upwards across the whole ecosystem because there's so much complementarity between our businesses and our consumer bases and retail clients. But where this gets to in five years, it's a function of where the platform takes you. And that's what's the most exciting to me because as you know, you've got just a privileged relationship with this consumer and this retailer. And to me, it's just, it's quite unrivaled in its specialness in the market. Yeah, it's so true. It seems like you're kind of like in the infancy for what you're doing and just really it's how the whole world is changing and you kind of have your, your finger on it. And, you know, looking back now too, what would you say within this journey that you've been on with Afterpay would be your most proud? What are you, what are you most proud of? I'm probably the most proud that an Australian born company can prove to the world the capability of Australia. And there's a 750, 800 people in Australia that and now we do have 400 in the US, but just showing the DNA and allowing that to shine through. And then also um, seeing some amazing entrepreneurs from Australia also do similar things and being able to contribute to future entrepreneurs following the same path. Traditionally, Australian businesses didn't go global. And so to me, yes, we, you know, we got to rebase and we need to learn culture. And as I like, I'm sitting here in LA, like my life has changed demonstrably to where it was three, five years ago. But I am very proud of Australia's ability to prove itself to the world. How has that transition? And I, and I, I assume was the transition once you got acquired by Square that you moved to Los Angeles, where you did that? I, no, I moved. I moved over in kind of. Um, end of 2017, early 2018. And we went live in June, 2018 in the US. And I was based out of San Francisco. And I went to see all of the Silicon Valley funds. And, you know, there was just this, sorry, we don't invest in Australian companies. Like that was literally the response. And we were so lucky to meet a, a gentleman named Dana Stolder at Matrix, who ended up actually putting money into our public company. Wow. Because he understood the opportunity, which was like against all of the fund's previous history. But it was like, I'm hearing of like these, there are venture funds that now search out of Australia. They see these technologies, they bring them global. I just think like people's mindsets broadening outside of San Francisco and broadening, you know, outside of, um, outside of where, you know, they're, they're familiar with, you know, even if you, you think about Cash App, you know, Cash App started in the Southeast moved into the center of America and then moved out to the coasts. And that's a reasonably untraditional framework for how people have built businesses in the US. And so there's just different ways of thinking that have created immense, immense scale. But yeah, sitting here in the US and just seeing how big the world is and having the chance to build something amongst that is awesome. What do you love about the US and, and what do you miss from back home? The coffee's terrible. Well, you know, Australians are proud of their coffee. You have to meet. So another guest I had on the show is a guy, Nicholas Stone. Yeah, Bluestone Lane. Of course I know Nick. Bluestone Lane. And he's like, we would like go and get our coffees, uh, go and get our offices based on where his shops were. That's what he said. And and then he'd be like, did you move? Because this shop is like now fallen and this one's. So yeah, like Nick's awesome. Like, yeah, I do miss Australian 
coffee for sure. And I love a lot about the US. I mean, there's so much opportunity. There's so much scale. There's so much incredible talent and knowledge. And yeah, it's just, it's great to have the balance of both. I'm going to let you go, but I want to ask one other question. Just when you were acquired and what was that feeling like when Square presented you with this? I mean, seems to me just unbelievable opportunity. What were you feeling at the time? Yeah, we were already public. We were already charging our own path. And so to me, it was just about the people. You know, it was about confidence in the people that we could take this, who, which is our baby, and contribute to something bigger. And actually, the sum of the parts, everyone is helping everyone, you know? And so to me, yes, like the, the strategic, commercial, corporate opportunity was so clear. It was actually, do we have the right human beings and values and behaviors and mindset to bring this to life? And so, you know, your universe is quite small in, you know, who could be your potential partners to do this. And there was no doubt in my mind that, that it's the right people here to build the next phase. And so that gave me a huge amount of comfort. And uh, yeah, it's just all, all surreal. Naturally, the transaction closes in Q1 next calendar year. So, you know, we're still working on the path to close, but um, I'm excited with uh, what the future holds. I'm excited for you and glad to have you here in the US and I am sure there are going to be a lot of VCs who are not going to be taking any Australian companies lightly. That is for sure. sure. So that makes me happy. Yeah, which is awesome. So Nick, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and wishing you the best of luck and continued success and uh, hope to talk to you down the road. Thank you. You too. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.